Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Twice every weekday on Vision and on demand in the free Vision Christian Media app. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. A controversial story to tell today and one if you are a sports lover you'll be very interested in. Henry Olonga, he was one of two Zimbabwean cricketers who decided to make their mark during the 2003 World Cup by wearing black armbands designed to tell the world that they were mourning the death of democracy in their homeland of Zimbabwe. Well, if you're aware of Robert Mugabe, he didn't take that too well. It led to, in fact, Henry being effectively charged with treason. And Henry has lived in the UK since that time of escaping Zimbabwe. Henry Alonga is coming to Australia and there's going to be a couple of opportunities if you're in WA or in South Australia to be able to see Henry Alonga share his story. He's going to be in Perth on the 29th of August and in South Australia, Adelaide on the 1st of September. Well, Henry Alonga is joining us. Hello, Henry. Welcome along to 2020. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. Well, Henry, it's great to talk to you, and you'll be a welcome visitor to Australia, and not least of those reasons being that you're married to an Aussie girl, Tara. Uh, Tell us about your wife. Well, Tara hails from Adelaide. She's a teacher whom um, I became acquainted with in 96. I was at the academy, the I don't know what it's called now, but it was called the Australian Institute of Sport um, Academy, uh, the Commonwealth Bank Cricket Academy. And Rod Marsh was running it, and Dennis Lilly was popping in once in a while to do some coaching there. I'd come across there to get some work on my action. I had a dodgy action back then, so it needed fixing. I got sent all over the world, actually. I went to India in 95, and Australia in 96, and South Africa in 97. And it was while on that trip in 96. Um, but I had an, a radio interview, would you believe it? And I mentioned a couple of things. One of those things was my faith, and uh, that led to a pastor calling me. He happened to be the youth pastor of a small little church, and Tara attended that as, uh, as a normal member, but she was also part of the youth uh, uh, leadership team. And uh, I was invited to come and just hang out with them on a Wednesday evening, perhaps, and went across to this place and uh, was uh, unfortunately left to sit on my own. Um, while the other kids were, who were obviously familiar with each other were socializing, and uh, it was down to Tara to come and make me feel a bit <laughs> welcome, I suppose. And from there, we, you know, we spoke, we met a couple of times after that, uh, once at, at her church, and then prior to my leaving um, on the week after that service, um, got chatting about all sorts of things. We spoke deep into the night. Um, so this was 96, but then we, we stayed in touch quite sporadically, really, for eight years after that, and there was no romantic inclination in any way. Um, In fact, I think both of us were pretty committed to other people at the time, and then when I came over to this country and uh, was settled here after the Black Armband protest, um, we finally got in touch. She'd written uh, an email many months, uh, you know, prior to my seeing it, uh, around about the time of the Black Armband protest, which... I guess would have been round about, you know, April, May. And she then 
uh, had waited for my response, and I had to sift through thousands of emails uh, as I attempted to reply and respond to everyone who'd emailed me, you know, giving their best wishes. And uh, eventually I got to hers, emailed her back, told her I was okay, I was in England, I was settled, um, I was relatively safe. And uh, from there we just got talking, and within, what, a few months we we got to meet, we, we fell in love, we got married. And so <laughs> I think we, we sort of kick-started everything around about um, maybe maybe June, July, August, uh, and uh, by April the next year, it was uh, we were walking, uh, well, she was walking up the aisle, I suppose, um, in Adelaide. Well, it's a great connection to Australia, and uh, Australian audiences uh, have that connection too, as they may well turn out to see you address some audiences there in Perth and in Adelaide. Let's go back to the big controversy, the armband, the black armband at the 2003 World Cup. What was the reasoning behind that, this protest against the death of democracy in Zimbabwe? Well, let me say Zimbabwe is a different place now. It's, it's hardly making the news around the world. I have no idea about Australia, but it certainly isn't on the agenda here in the UK. There are all sorts of other distractions going on and things that are keeping people preoccupied. But back in the day, go back, I suppose, to uh, 2000, 1999, um, right about there, uh, there was a, a very well-publicized uh, issue with regards to land redistribution in Zimbabwe. And so most people will remember that. Um, period of time. Now, that was important for Andy Flower. It was important for me, too, but my motivation for doing the protest was uh, three-pronged, really. The first being um, my discovery over a number of years of various abuses and excesses that the Zimbabwe regime um, had uh, committed, if you will. Um, And these are things that I'd heard of in my youth. Uh, There's some very well-publicized uh, documents written about the times of trouble in the early 80s when Robert Mugabe first took power. So if people uh, were to type in, for example, in any search engine, Matabililand troubles, and it's a difficult word to spell, but if you just typed in early 80s troubles Zimbabwe, something like that, you'd get a full picture of that. Now, I was oblivious to that up until maybe my early to mid-20s. And, of course, with the burgeoning of the Internet, that enabled me to do some research and discover a little bit more about this leader that I'd been taught about from junior school and told that he was uh, an excellent leader. And all of a sudden I was now being, I suppose, confronted with the idea that perhaps he'd uh, ordered that a certain group of people in Zimbabwe uh, were done away with. Uh, They estimate around something like 20,000 people lost their lives during the Troubles. Now, I actually grew up in the area where most of that trouble happened. It's an area called Matabiland. I went to school there both junior school and high school. I was a boarder at a couple of good government schools. Um, and, and as I said, lived in the area or went to school, certainly in junior school, a school called Rhodes State Preparatory School in the Metopus. It was right in the heart of where a lot of this trouble was happening. So there was a mental, um, I, I, I guess there was a, I, there was a mental recollection of troubles from the age of about eight or nine. There were newspaper articles, of course, where they wouldn't have exposed us to those, but we used to speak to teachers. Teachers used to carry guns. Uh, they would tell us about why the troubles were happening, etc. And in very few of those conversations was Robert Mugabe ever painted as someone who'd overstepped the mark. And so you can imagine with the internet um, burgeoning around about the mid to late 90s around the world, 
one could do their own research. You didn't have to go to a library. Um, you could actually just, you know, pull up a website and, and do a search. And some of the stuff I read there was extraordinarily hair-raising and quite gut-wrenching, really, hearing stories of people um, who were tortured, killed, and murdered in the most brutal and heinous ways. Uh, the trouble stopped around about the mid-'80s, 86, I think. There was a unity accord that was signed between um, the two most powerful parties in Zimbabwe. But the scars remained. Uh, my, uh, my stepmom actually has relatives that uh, disappeared during those times. So, uh, of course, I had someone who I could uh, speak to and pick their brains. And the people of Matabililand have uh, very strong memories of the time. And uh, I, of course, wasn't personally affected, but I can imagine that there are a lot of people who want justice and haven't received it because there was an amnesty that pardoned anyone who was involved in that time of trouble. So you add that to economic upheaval in the 90s, you add that to uh, corruption in government, and of course, finally, uh, the, probably the biggest thing that uh, made me pay attention was the growing, uh, I suppose, unrest surrounding the farms in Zimbabwe. Um, and that led to, I, I suppose, more interest in the issue and, and then galvanized my ideas that something ought to be said and spoken out against a lot of the troubles that were happening. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing, of course, and I'll be brief about this, is my Christian faith. Uh, I was compelled to do something. Many people who are of a Christian disposition may understand the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and basically that's a story that's told about or poses the question, who is our neighbor in life? Who is our neighbor in society? And uh, the story uh, is basically of two guys who walk past a man who's been a victim of thuggery, and they decide to walk on the other side of the road and ignore the problem. And eventually a man does come along who gets involved, gets his hands dirty, fixes the man up, takes him to, uh, for want of a better description, a place where he can convalesce like a hospital, and pays the bill and says, if there's any more uh, to this bill, just let me know, I'll pay the rest. That's the uh, abridged version, if you will. It's not the full version. It's not uh, absolutely accurate in wording, but that's the spirit in the sense you get out of it. And I suppose from a young age, I always felt that in life we have two choices. When we see trouble, when we see people who are in pain or people who are oppressed, we can walk on the other side of the road or we can get our hands dirty, either metaphorically or literally. And so that story resonated with me, and I felt I had to do something. With all the things I was hearing about people who were um, being, uh, I suppose, disenfranchised in the country, victims of brutality from the state, etc. There's a long list of things that I could make, but I'll, I'll leave those. Uh, and, of course, finally, I suppose, the social issue. Um, I was involved in an orphanage, if you can call it that. It wasn't really an orphanage where kids lived, but it was, uh, I suppose, a place where uh, AIDS orphans and I know people might hate that word uh, or those phrases because it sounds politically incorrect, but uh, for want of a better description, uh, children who were affected by HIV and AIDS, m massive problem in Zimbabwe. And I was asked to be the patron of one of these called the Mumvuri Project, and they used to help kids who were living on the streets and try to get them back into accommodation uh, and also try to um, get them to school. So it was my dealings with the orphanage that just uh, started to make me have a sense of the social injustice of uh, living in Zimbabwe, because a lot of politicians were actually very wealthy. There are many reasons for that. One of those reasons, of course, is we got involved in a war in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which enriched a lot of people. It was interesting that during the national budget, there wasn't a lot of money that was 
set aside for people who are destitute or people who are in financial trouble. Uh, you might get that in the West. Uh, the West is very good uh, at taking care of people who are unemployed or who are facing struggles in life, uh, poverty, etc. Uh, I've lived in England for the last 12 or so years, and I, I can, I've witnessed with my own eyes how uh, social responsibility is a priority of the government. And this just I'm not going to say it didn't exist in Zimbabwe, but it was very weak. And uh, we were spending lots of money on other issues that I thought weren't as pressing as the issues surrounding uh, you know, HIV and AIDS and or- orphans, widows, people who are on the margins of society. And so, long story short, you add all these things together, and uh, I was a young man ripe to speak out and you know, get involved in the fight for social justice and for fairness and for, I suppose, an appeal to the powers that be in Zimbabwe to stop uh, human rights abuses, etc. Well, Henry Olonga is coming to Australia. He's going to be in WA and in South Australia. End of August, you'll be able to see him as a guest of City Bible Forum in Perth on the 29th of August and in Adelaide on the 1st of September. If you go to the City Bible Forum website at citybibleforum.org, you can click on either of those two cities and you can register to be part of an audience to see Henry Olonga. Henry is also the author of his autobiography called Blood, Sweat and Treason. He's also a singer. We'll talk to him about those elements of his life and we'll hear some more about his Christian testimony in just a short while. We're spending some time talking with Henry Olonga. He's coming to Australia at the end of August. You might have caught the introduction a little earlier. Henry Olonga, one of two Zimbabwean cricketers who decided to make their mark during the 2003 World Cup by wearing black armbands. And this was happening at the cricket. Robert Mugabe didn't take too kindly to that. Uh, And effectively then, Henry was forced to flee Zimbabwe. Uh, Henry, you've written your story in the book Blood, Sweat and Treason. Uh, It's a tell-all story. Well, yes, it is. It's uh, basically the map of my life from uh, when I was born in Zambia in 1976 uh, through to growing up in Zimbabwe in the early 80s and uh, the transition from wanting to be a Kenyan athlete to uh, becoming a, a cricketer who then represented his country for eight or so seasons uh, to my eventual settling in the UK, getting married in 2004 uh, and maybe a couple of years on after that because a little bit has changed since uh, the protest. I, I am married, as I mentioned, uh, but we also have two girls, two wonderful girls who uh, we're now obviously parenting. So there's a lot that's happened in my life, and the book fills in all the blanks, I suppose. There's not a lot you can get through uh, in an evening, as I do uh, when I have these evening concerts where I share my life story, or indeed in a radio interview. So uh, about, what, five, six years ago, the idea of writing a book came to my mind the understanding that if I didn't write it down at the time, I'd forget a lot of things uh, was, was, was pressing. And so I guess um, I got together with a, with a publisher who was willing to, to write the story. There were a few who weren't. Um, but then in the end, um, I think we, we have a concise uh, account of the story of my life thus far. Um, it's a quickish read. You'll get through it in about three days if you sit down and you know, have the time. But uh, it basically will give anyone who wants to know the motives behind why I 
I did many of the things I did, the decisions I made, uh, the decision to go into cricket versus going into singing, etc. Um, I think the book will paint a, a, a pretty true picture of it. Let's talk about the singing for a few moments because you are a great singer and an emerging tenor. Uh, there's a number of productions you've been part of, The Gondoliers, Annie Get Your Gun, Joseph and His Technicolor Dreamcoat, and you've also recorded a contemporary pop album with one of the UK's top producers. Uh, is singing one of those things? As I understand it, you, you, you really sometimes have regrets about actually pursuing a cricket career when you perhaps feel like you should have pursued your singing career earlier. Well, first of all, let me say I'm not a great singer. <laughs> I am a singer, oh, um, and I, I am capable. I, I suppose I can hold a note, but... Um, I, I guess we'll have to see whether people like my style of music because it's quite different. Um, as far as regrets, no regrets because I, I always understood that uh, a cricket career would be short-lived. Now, there's some people who manage to eke out a career over something like 15 to 20 years. There are very few of those who do, but some can. So realistically, you're looking at retirement in your 30s. And I was always aware of the fact that the voice, at least a tenor voice anyway, begins to mature around about that time. I'd been certainly told that by various uh, vocal coaches and people I'd worked with in music productions, that uh, it would take a while. And so there wouldn't be as much a rush uh, to make it in the world of music as a tenor um, as there would be, I suppose, to try and fulfill any cricketing potential that I had. So I, I kind of took that on board, and I continued to sing even while I was a cricketer. People... Um, you know, may may have heard of various songs that I, I did over the years. There was certainly one that uh, resonates with Zimbabweans called Our Zimbabwe. Um, I also took part in various performances and recitals uh, along the way. I performed at the Harare International Festival of the Arts. Uh, and, and ever since uh, coming to the UK, I've done a lot of performances with schools and choirs. And uh, yes, as you mentioned, uh, I did complete an album with a man called Robbie Bronneman a few years ago, but that was a long time ago, and uh, I'm itching to release my second album. But the music has certainly been something I fell in love with at school. It started off by my omission in plays of any note in junior school, uh, giving me a hunger to want to get involved in plays, because I was one of those kids who just wanted to get involved in everything that school offered. So I played sport, I was involved in, in, in the academic side of things, I loved learning, uh, I certainly loved the extracurricular activities of, available at school as well. Uh, and and plays were, were one of those things I never quite cracked in junior school. And so in high school, I decided to go for the audition. I I, I was cast as a girl in Oklahoma, which was traumatic enough to, for me to think I'd never want to do that again. So I became a tenor in the same year uh, and joined the choir. And from there, I just took part in many productions that uh, led to me really falling in love with music and, of course, led to this fork in the road at the end of my schooling, which was a toss-up between cricket and, uh, and singing. And, of course, uh, as I already mentioned, many people spoke to me and said, listen, you can take your singing up later. And so it was that I veered towards cricket. The other thing is the cricket authorities in Zimbabwe really made big noises in wanting me to stay playing cricket uh, because I was, the, I was the fastest bowler at the time in Zimbabwe, and we needed fast bowlers to try and uh, compete against you know, nations like Pakistan and South Africa who had uh, very strong batting lineups and very strong bowling lineups. And so pace was something they felt they wanted. I had pace, so they picked me. 
Well, we've been talking about your cricket career. We've mentioned your book, Blood, Sweat and Treason, and we've touched on your music career. Let me come back to your Christian testimony. Uh, 16 years of age, uh, you went through a, a conversion. How much mm. has your faith meant to you as you've gone through all of the trials uh, and even some of the uh, the peaks as well as the troughs? Well, I, I mean, clearly Christian faith is something that's given me an understanding of meaning and purpose in life. I think we all have big questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where do we go when it's all over? And I think that there are many ways of trying to answer those questions. For some people, it's it's faith. For others, it's trying to get as much out of life as they can in the now and not thinking about what happens after death and if there's hope beyond the grave. And, and of course, we've got many religions that try to answer those questions. We've got many expressions, whether it's philosophy, humanism, or whatever. Uh, we all try to make sense of life. And for me, I found purpose and meaning in the God of the Bible. I also understood the teachings of the Bible from a young age. I understood that mankind is separated from his creator by sin, etc., and that I needed to, uh, as it were, respond to the invitation by my creator into a personal relationship with himself. So that happened at the age uh, of 16, and um, it had a profound impact on my life, the way I think, my conscience, how sharp it is, my sense of right and wrong, um, my place in the world, my purpose in the world, what kind of world I want to leave behind, uh, the career choices I made, etc. So with that in mind, my Christian faith has been there throughout all of my life choices after I became a believer. I'll say this, just off the bat, I've uh, almost been killed three times. So <laughs> um, I, I think in moments like that, you, you kind of uh, crystallize uh, how you'd like to live the rest of your life, given the fact that you feel you're lucky to be here. And so I've always felt that I want to make my life a life that counts, and so that when I look back on my life in my latter years, in my uh, dying moments, I will be able to look back and think, you know, my life actually left a positive legacy on the world, whatever that is. And so Christian faith has been a stabilizing influence in my life. Um, it has given me a, 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 the right perspective uh, of life. And, and so, for example, in my cricket career, it's allowed me to understand that winning isn't everything and that losing isn't the end of the world either. Now, you have to understand, I played for Zimbabwe for many years. We lost a lot of matches, Neil. <laughs> so I think it was very important for me to have a balanced view of my career because my career was just a job. In as much as it was an honor to play for my country, it was a chosen career path. And I think it's important that I understood, and I suggest this to other people, that your job doesn't define your ultimate worth as a human being. It's, a lot of guys think this way, though, isn't it? We, we get a sense of significance from what we do. And I think it was important for me to understand that, you know, my life has value, whether I'm taking wickets for Zimbabwe or not, whether I'm making runs, and I didn't make many of those either, uh, that my life counts more than the things I do. So I probably was able to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that may come with a tough career, be it depression that comes from not performing on the field uh, and related issues. Um, you know, I guess, I, I guess from the viewpoint of um, the, the, the downs, because there are many downs uh, and the ups, the fact that I know that there's hope beyond the grave, that there's an eternity that I may enjoy with my Creator when I'm gone from this planet gives me a sense of peace and comfort 
which I don't think the world offers. I think the world attempts to give you things that promise freedom, uh, promise satisfaction, promise even happiness, I suppose. Some people think, oh, if I just made enough money, or if I was famous, if I made a name for myself in sport, maybe then people would appreciate and love me, and uh, my life would count. And I think perhaps just an understanding that your creator loves you, but just the way you are, of course, there are issues to deal with, uh, to come into a wholesome relationship with him. But that, I think, is an important message that human beings need to hear. So I've actually spent a lot of my life sharing that message, hoping that my testimony will help people understand there is a God out there who loves them and who wants them. Uh, but I suppose the thing is, the ball is left in our court to engage with him. Um, the Bible actually says, ask and you will receive, knock, and uh, the door will be open, seek and you will find. I don't know if I've got those in the right order, but it does suggest that God can be found if we look for him. And I was lucky enough, of course, to live in a country that allowed me to have the freedom to discover, to be curious, and to discover this God. And so I, I found my Christian faith has allowed me to keep a balanced view of my, my life, my sport. It's given me hope in times of trouble. I've had trouble. I've been in exile for a number of years now. Uh, trouble has come in my career as well. I had injuries. I had disappointments. Um, I got dropped from the side many times. Uh, but ultimately, uh, when it's all said and done, um, hopefully, uh, when I get to the end of my life, I will have lived a life that uh, my God, my Lord, if you will, will look back on and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, you've done all things well. And that's what I live for now. My Christian faith has given me an impetus to continue after cricket, uh, find something new to do with my time and my life, and that is actually sharing the extraordinary message that we call the good news that we find in the pages of Holy Scripture. So, yes, that's, I think that's enough about my faith, but uh, it's very important to me. Well, Henry, you mentioned you didn't score many test runs, but you did take 68 wickets, 68 (laughs) wickets in 30 tests, 58 wickets in 50 one-day internationals. And as a fast bowler, you certainly were a treasure for the Zimbabweans. Uh, We've talked through some of the issues of your book, and I'll point people to your book called Blood, Sweat and Treason, and the fact that you're coming out to Australia with your Australian wife, Tara, You'll be in Perth in WA on the 29th of August, in Adelaide on the 1st of September. And uh, for listeners, you can register to see Henry Alonga telling his story. You can register on the website of the City Bible Forum at citybibleforum.org. I know there'll be a lot of sports lovers who'll be interested in hearing your story, Henry Alonga. And uh, it's great being able to catch up with you today. Thanks so much for being with us on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.